Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. In today's episode, we hear from Matt Taylor. Matt Taylor is a geology professor from the University of Denver who's been coming down to Nicaragua for many years, a good friend of mine, who's also been studying the water table here. The water table here in Nicaragua, or in Gigante specifically, has been getting drier and drier, and he's been trying to understand that. But not just that, he comes from an interesting background of being born in Zambia, raised in Rhodesia, now known as Zimbabwe, and just has an overall really cool and inspirational story of how he got to where he is today. Also, please remember that you can support Misfits and Rejects on Patreon. Patreon is a platform for creators to allow their fans to support them through monthly donations, whether it be $1 a month, $5 a month. If you support me with $1 a month, I can give one of my guests a beer to help them talk a little bit more openly about their experiences in their life. $5 a month would allow me to buy one beer for every single guest who came on my show. If you can't afford to support Misfits and Rejects, please just share Misfits and Rejects. It's awesome to get new subscribers, and I think that the message is something that can help a lot of people maybe get themselves unstuck. So with that said, please sit back and enjoy this episode with Matt Taylor. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners... A lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I have Matthew Taylor sitting next to me here in Higante Bay, the beautiful Higante Bay where a lot of these episodes come from. And uh, he's a special friend of mine coming here for many years doing very cool things in the Pueblo with water. And I thought he'd be really cool to come in and tell us that side of the story. But also he also has a crazy background. Born in Zambia, grew up in Zimbabwe, and then made his way to the States, got his PhD in um, geography, and just somebody I think has a wealth of knowledge we could all benefit from. So, Matthew, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have you, dude. <laughs> Good to see you again, Jake. <laughs> I know. You come and go, but you, you are here for a lot of the, yep. the, the craziest moments that we've yep. ever had here. Prior to this episode, we were out. We're doing it from John's office, mm-hmm. as we always do, and He's like, oh, I helped John put up that uh, that tarp, which mm-hmm. prevented the the tsunami, or not the tsunami, but the hurricane from penetrating mm-hmm. the office. And I mean, you spent a lot of time here, dude. Yep. Like, wh- why do you love Nicaragua so much? That's a good question. Um, my wife is from Guatemala, and I ended up here somewhat by mistake uh, with her cousin. He's a pilot, has had a little airplane. And I was in Guatemala one day, and he said, Matthew, hey, Tamara, what are you doing? Do you want to fly to Nicaragua? Yeah, sure. Fuck sure. Got in his little plane, and uh, we landed in Chinandega. In a private airport? Is there a private airport? There's there's an international airport in Chinandega. I had my passport stamped in (laughs) Chinandega. Oh, yeah, yeah. We landed in a little Cessna. And these guys, these Guatemalans, were coming down to buy land. They realized, just like a lot of North Americans, that land was there for the taking. Things were beginning to settle down. This was 2004. And in Guatemala, and as in many other places in Central America, land is very scarce and expensive. Nicaragua was opening up. They come down, they buy land, and they put cattle on it. 
I was like, sure, come along for the adventure. And um, I just found Nicaraguans very open, willing to speak about what had happened in the past, in the revolution, etc., etc. Guatemalans, with all respect, are very closed about what happened in their past, and I think that's because the repression there was maybe a bit more severe, and so you just didn't open your mouth. So I found, wow, Nicaraguans are very friendly. And fell in love, fell in love with Nicaragua from 2004 onwards. So, yeah, it's an interesting theme that has come up in past episodes, especially mm-hmm. most recent ones with like JJM, I think is episode 80, coming across the border from Costa Rica. And there was a huge billboard that says like, we open our arms to you. You are welcome. Like mm-hmm. we want to hug you. And, and that is something that I think we all embrace mm-hmm. by being here. Just how the people are towards us. Cause we get that a lot, you know, as expats living here. You know, like who are trying to start businesses, who are making more money than the local population. Mm-hmm. Like, how are they receiving that? Are they okay with you? Mm-hmm. And yeah, nine times out of ten, like they're happy to have you. And and there's also individuals in the community who are benefiting from that as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a culture of just embracing opportunity, embracing change. Mm-hmm. We are going through a giant change right now, mm-hmm. and within the politics of Nicaragua, we don't know where it will lead to, but. They are a culture of change and open to the possibility yep. of something new. So sounds like you kind of came in with that same sort yep. of yep. embrace of yep. just welcome. Yep. And so what happened when you landed? Chinandega. Gosh, there was a little bit of a, it was an interesting <laughs> journey because Guillermo, the guy who was flying the plane along with uh, another Guatemalan called Alberto. I won't use last names. Guillermo <laughs> is no longer alive. He was. Purchased a helicopter in Guatemala and was sort of sequestered by the, the narcos there. And uh, his helicopter was used by the narcos and then disposed of. So he died. Uh, and, so like and that, forced so, to basically run drugs for people. Yeah, forced to then, run drugs. To, and then, okay, you've done your business. Done. Mm. Uh, we, we, we get rid of you. But came down to Chinandega with them. And uh, what was the question again? The question was just like when you did land in Chinandega. Oh, hot as hell. Because <laughs> as you know, if you've been to Chinandega, Chinandega is hot. It's very and still, very like just, low-lying bushes, not much tree shade. And they, uh, we, we drove out to the coast. Um, in search of what? Just the land that they were trying to purchase? Well, Guillermo, he knew I was at a university. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to buy a bunch of land near a, a large estuary, mm-hmm. mangroves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because he always had in mind about protection of the environment, and we thought we could use the power of the universities, North American universities, to one protect the environment because there's a lot of further up north there. There's a lot of shrimp farming that that cuts down the est- the, the mangroves and makes the big uh, shrimp farms. So we thought we can use the power of the university to do a little bit of conservation and also to buy land. I mean, just buy land. And uh, the beaches were empty back then, 2004. Um, I mean, if I looked at the map, not not that map, but other maps, you could point at places now that people say, oh, there's this break and this break and this break. It was it was wild back then. It was, it was pretty good. And it so, was, like, did you... Did they find land, and then did you jump in on any opportunities to invest? Or? We actually did. 
back in those days, it was a bit shady. <laughs> um, you had somebody who was in the municipality and you, that person would stay in the municipality and would see who had not been paying their taxes on the concession land on the beach, right? So, of course, if you haven't paid on your concession for five, ten years, I have the right to come in and pay those back taxes and then pay their on forward. And that Take was their philosophy. So then it becomes mine. And that was their strategy. For, for the still coastal hap- that still happens today. It, so, so we actually, one day on the internet, I can show you on the, on Google Earth, um, it was a huge piece. I mean, about three kilometers of coast. And so we went in, we had this handwritten agreement between this local compass, you know, farmer. I put in a couple of thousand dollars. You know, you were talking earlier about putting in five grand mm-hmm. um, for a, a business investment. And, uh, but then Guillermo died, you know, and um, so it all fell apart. So it fell apart. You, you know? lost all so, your money. Well, a couple of grand. Lost a couple of grand. It yeah. Was great, it was a great adventure. You yeah. Know? So. Um, that's interesting because I had a similar experience up there, the same area where a friend had, uh, not even courted, but like talked to somebody who was willing to like give us an, an enormous amount yep. of property for like $5,000. So I landed in Managua, came out there, like found the lady, like couldn't even drive to where she was, had to hike like five miles. And yep. then I sat down with her and we started negotiating. She's like, Oh no, you misunderstood. Like I want thirteen thousand per lot or something uh, like that, yeah, and yeah. I was like, okay, that's fine, and then scratch that deal. And you're right, like Nicaragua has a reputation of having opportunities that you can capitalize on, but I will say that a lot of those opportunities, I think, are uh, rumor. Yep. You know, a lot of us come down oh. with hopes that like we're going to get rich quick, and a lot of us leave with our tail between our legs because. And, and also, the, the minute that you put money down, you have to prove yourself. Right. You have to justify yourself. You put money down, you buy a property here, you have to say, then you have to spin the story to all of your friends that it was worth it. And this is a great place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that. And I, I would argue that that has been part of the success of anybody who's invested in Nicaragua. Even Santana is like that. They plopped down a lot of money. They had the propaganda machine behind them to say, Yes, Nicaragua is good. Come down, come down, come down. Every time that something comes out in Forbes magazine or in New York Times, New York Times, and uh, says, you know, Carlos Pelas, the founder of tourism in Nicaragua, I send it to Mark Ford, and um, I highlight the last part. Say, Carlos Pelas, founder of tourism in Nicaragua, and I just. And do it as a sort of a, like to prod them. Mm-hmm. And they reply and say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because if you think about it, that's why they have that outside of Santana. It says, fundada in 1997. There's only one reason they have that up there. Is It's a big finger up to here. Because they are. Santana really is the anchor for tourism here. They made it happen. Carlos Pellas is riding on the tails of them. They really made it happen. And, um, so they did the propaganda that we all do on a bigger scale, right? Because they've got that, that international living, um, 
sort of uh, machine behind them yeah. to be able to sell Nicaragua. And they, yeah. they've done and they, a and really so the good audience, job. The under, audience understands they're a publishing company the that's publishing based out company. of what, Boston? Uh, no, um, Maryland. Maryland, okay. Uh, Baltimore. So yeah, the publishing company took a large chunk of money and invested, invested and in used their powers yep. of yep. Uh, persuasion to and, it. And they have a wonderful uh, development there. No, it's great. Yeah, yeah and Santana's yeah, yeah. a very reputable place yeah. to buy a lot, invest your money, yeah. and get a return on that money for sure. Um, backpedaling real quick, you know, so the audience mm-hmm. can get a better understanding of you and your childhood, you know, growing up in Africa, born in Zimbabwe. What I learned tonight for the first time was you were the first white baby to be born in the Zimbabwe ho- what, National Hospital. No, or? no, no. This was after independence in Zambia. Okay. Sorry. Zambia. Zambia. I apologize. In Lusaka. It was a post-independence. So post-independence from the UK. Um, the majority rule. Um, First baby born in the brand new maternity hospital in Lusaka. And they wanted, of course, which I understand, that person to be a, a black person. And I so happen to be out. So there's probably a plaque hidden in some corner that says, you know, Matthew Taylor has the honor of being the first person born post-independence in this new maternity hospital in Lusaka. How long so, did you stay there before you moved oh, to Zimbabwe? Maybe, but back then it wasn't Zimbabwe, it was Rhodesia. Okay. So Rhodesia, which if you think about the name, after Cecil John Rhodes, the Rhodes Scholarship in the US, he named a country after himself. Hmm. Rhodesia, Rhodesia. I mean, that that's pretty fucking amazing. Right. I went to a elementary school that was called CJR, Cecil John Rhodes, named after this white guy from England who had this vision. He had the vision to build a railroad from Cape to Cairo, like this whole British empire. So, but yep. So I grew up in, we, we moved to Rhodesia. My dad was an engineer. How, how, how old were you when you were in Rhodesia? One year old. Okay. Yeah. Just no, no, no. I have no memory of uh, Zambia at all. Um, but how um, they, how they make their way, your parents to this area? Like, well, what were they doing? They are from the very northeast of England. So post-World War II, super depressed. This area was a shipbuilding area. Um, Wall's End is where Hadrian's Wall ended that separated Scotland from from England. Wall's End was a famous shipbuilding area. Um, After World War II, the Koreans took over shipbuilding. And so Wall's End just went... At that time, the, the Brits still had lots of colonies. So there was opportunity. Oh yeah, come out and be a be a colonizer, right? Is that what they said? Like they're sending out flyers well, and say, hey, no, come there to- was no, there was just opportunity, right? There was okay. opportunity. You know, hey, job advertisements, uh sort of like we are the big mining company. Come out, there's this opportunity, blah blah blah, and you can live and it and it was. I mean, my life growing up in Rhodesia was a life of privilege as a white person in Africa. And it was privileged because you could buy time, because you could buy labor cheaply. Um, so you grew up with a nanny who took care of you? With a nanny, with a, with a, actually, I'm going to use a term that might offend people, but, um, that's what the term that we used was garden boy. Garden boy? We had garden boys. Although the garden boy might be 50 years old, right? Garden boy. But, um, that was the term that was used at that time. Um, and, 
so you'd have your property, and at the back of the property, you would have um, servants' quarters, mm-hmm. have their house and have their their crops grown, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was a, and then as a kid, I would always sort of wander off and hang out back there, you know, around the open fire where they're cooking their food and smoking their ganja, you know, the the old the garden boys back there. He's a sinewy guy who's digging holes in your garden all day, planting your avocado trees, etc., etc., and uh, go and hang out with them in, in the bag. So, and this was the property that was like, was there agriculture on it or was it just a no, nice just, property? Just, just a house, like a big house with, you know, and everybody, like, I think here in Latin America too, you know, if you have a big enough uh, piece of land, maybe a couple of acres, you, you, you have fruit trees, you have ducks, you have chickens, you have everything, and you know, the house with a swimming pool, etc., etc., etc. So, but at the same time, Rhodesia was going through a civil war. My dad was a bit older, so he wasn't called up, as we, as we uh, said, like probably in the States too, for the Vietnam War, you get called up, you have no choice. Um, it was a bloody civil war for freedom. Um, as a Cub Scout, I didn't learn to, you know, sew badges. I learned to go to the shooting range and shoot a, what, an MAG, a fully automatic gun with a belt feeder that I couldn't even hold up. You know, it's on a, it's on a tripod and you're just holding that thing. Well, you're on the ground lying down. That was life there. And but are you fighting for the liberation of the people? Or are you fighting for you're you're fighting for at that time it was uh, like many civil wars in in Africa. It was well th- this was a for a fight for majority rule because we were the minority and we we had power right. So there was a big subjugated population and they were fighting for majority rule. Um, my parents, very liberal, very left, were pro the majority, but it was very hard to be pro the majority. I'm drawing a line across my lips here because if we were pro majority, we would be basically killed, right? Um, so you have to, you have to play, play the game. Um, but it was it was a, it was a hard life. I mean, it was a beautiful life. Like I said earlier, it was uh, because you buy time, you buy labor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the same time, when you have to drive from one city to another, you have to do it in convoys. You'd get okay. It's announced between Bulawayo, let's say a town in Rhodesia, then Zimbabwe, and Salisbury. Salisbury is now called Harare. So names changed with independence. Um, the convoy will be leaving at six in the morning. So before you got on the convoy, all the troopies, the troopers, Rhodesian armed forces would give you a talk. Okay, we'll be driving. There'll be an armored car at the front. There'll be five cars, another armored car, another five cars, and there'll be a plane flying overhead, you know, to give cover. But if we get ambushed, this is what you do. You know, you, we'll give you instructions. Either you floor it, and you carry on driving, or you pull the car over and you go into the ditch. And uh, so it was, it was, it was a, it was a heavy life. Our school, well, I, I think like in the states, you know, maybe people, um, you know, you have the instructions at school where you we had, we had grenade screens on our 
windows at school uh, from from RPGs and from grenades. It, it was it was pretty heavy. It was pretty heavy. You lived with fear every night. You turn on the news. It was very limited news, and it would be a it'd be the contact report. Okay, how many people are being killed on both sides in the war? Sort of like a little bit what's going on right now. Uh, here in Nicaragua, but uh, there it was, of course, and this was the Rhodesian Broadcasting Corporation, the RBC, giving their version of what had happened. So, of course, we killed more terrorists. That was the word that was used, terrorists, right, against the black people fighting for liberation. Um, and you've got to keep morale high. You know, you're 100,000 white people and there's 10 million black people. So it, it, it was hairy. It was really, really, really hairy. When did it get to the point where it was too hairy you had to leave? Because that's what happened. Is that ah, no, happened? no, 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 no. We never left. Okay. Never left. Yeah, we never took, never took what was called the chicken gap. Oh, tell us what the chicken never, gap means. The chicken gap is when you, you get too shit scared and you go. Okay. Took the chicken gap. And a lot of people did. They took the chicken gap to South Africa or they took the chicken gap to Australia, New Zealand or the U.S. Never did that because my parents knew that they had nothing to hide because they treated people well. Um, Talk so, us through that because so that means then you spent your formative youth yep. there and you your parents were continuing to do what they did to make money. You said your dad mm -hmm. was um, an, an engineer. An engineer. Actually, paradoxically, he was an engineer with a, a large uh, Czech company called Batya. You've probably seen their stores around the world in your travel, the Bata, B-A-T-A, Batya. Um, make shoes, shoes for people around the world, a very economical shoe company. So my dad was an engineer for Bacha. So and th th this, I'll give you this little side story. He, please um, do. Because the rest of the world put sanctions on Rhodesia because we were seen as a pariah state, right? So um, my dad would often go out of the country for engineering conferences and so once he sent his passport away, his Rhodesian passport for a visa to go to the UK or New Zealand or something, and the British High Commission seized his passport. He said, no, you're a spy. You're a spy for Rhodesia, right? You're breaking sanctions. So he didn't have a passport. So my mum went to the UK and got a passport in the name of one of my dad's uncles, no, one of my dad's cousins, same age, who was mentally challenged challenged, and would never have a passport and never travel. So my dad, from that point onwards, every time he would travel, he would put these thick glasses on and moustache. And if we were kids, we'd be traveling to the UK and we'd never travel with him. We'd travel apart and we didn't quite understand it. It was only when we got older that we understand that his passport was completely false, you know, and we're like, why, why is daddy flying on a different flight? Or why is, you know, why is he, why is he growing the mustache? You know, it was, it was weird, you know, I mean, it was because he was, he had been named as breaking sanctions. So I think, you know, whenever a country puts sanctions on other countries, I think there are consequences, very real consequences for people who aren't necessarily doing bad, right? I mean, my dad was an engineer at a big company employed thousands of Zimbabweans or Rhodesians, right, at the time. So, but anyway, yeah, so that was a little bit of an aside. Are, you, are um, they still with us, your parents? My dad 
shit, I'm getting close to the age. Well, I'm actually past the age that he died. He died when he was 47 um, from a heart attack. Um, my mum is still alive. And still living in? No, she left, I would say, about 10 years ago from Zimbabwe. To go back to England? Yep. Just because the situation in Zimbabwe got so bad. You know, Zimbabwe is the place that's famous for the trillion dollar, the trillion dollar note, uh, hyperinflation. Everything just became meaningless. It became a bar. It still is a barter economy. When they, when you go to church, uh, cash is meaningless. They, they pass the credit card machine in in Zimbabwe. No, yeah, we had um, Rusty Labushang on the show, who I think yeah. I wrote you about, and uh, you know, he was in prison for a murder he didn't commit there uh, for ten years, and he's now on a speaking tour around the world about his experience. And uh, I always think about you when I hear that story. Just no. Not knowing your story that well and hearing about um, the times that did happen and did occur towards the minority, which were white and, and in power at the time, you know? I mean, so. Rhodesian and, and um, Harare and Zimbabwe was hairy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we had many, we had a, like I was saying before. We're drinking seven-year rum, folks. Just okay. so you know. Just, just a little dribble in there. <laughs> <laughs> We had a pool, yeah, at our house, and um, some of the we had a, one good friend who was a helicopter pilot. Uh huh. Yeah, just like many war veteran veterans around the world, they had a lot of PTSD. These troops would be out in the field for ages. What are they doing they, though? They would come up our driveway uh-huh. and strip off naked even before getting to the house because they would smell so bad. They'd been out in the field and then just jump in the pool. And then... Uh, what yeah. are they doing in the field, though? Like oh. like scouting out like terrorists? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the... Uh, if, if you all look into... The, there are some very famous troop groups, one called the Grey Scouts and another one called the Salu Scouts. These were mounted on horseback. They'd just go in shorts pair of what we called Veldskuns, which would be uh, bush boots. Their FN, the gun they would use was an FN. It's a Fusil National from, from Belgium. Uh, 7.62 rounds. A very finicky gun. Um, Meaning it would jam up? Yeah. You have to oil it and maintain it and mummy it all the time. Not like an AK. Right. And uh, they'd be off in the bush for a long, long, long time. Observation watching, watching, watching. And, and so when they would approach your property, they would identify themselves and you let them in to like tip, yeah, in, your, well, tip in your pool and then well, clean we, themselves? Well, we, we had a lot of um, friends who were farmers in the outlying areas. And every farmer would have a large fence around their property with claymore mines, of course, facing outwards. And there was a, something, a system. I would go and stay with my friends who were farmers as, as a kid. They would have something called an agri alert system, and if you got uh, zooked, what they called it, or zonked by turs, that, that's a term, zonked by turs, right? You get the RPGs come in, so you call in the agri alert, like we're getting zonked, we're getting zonked, we're getting zonked. Can people nearby respond? Can nearby farmers respond? And so you're the, that's why they call it terrorism, right? You're a white farmer. You're not military. And you get nailed, right? Um, so 
the the terrorism aspect is a is a hard word. It's a hard word. I mean, terrorism is a because it wasn't a battle of army against army. It was army sometimes against civilians and another army against civilians. So, and neighbor against neighbor. Yep, I'm neighbor yep. So, so when did it become a point where you decided to your career path or whatever you chose to yep. like leave Africa? Um, so I finished high school in Zimbabwe and uh, earlier years went to a really traditional British boarding school where, you know you play rugby you you swim you do cross country you do all the you do the rappel course you do everything that's just to prepare you to be a good a good person you know um, and it was it was it was good I mean this boarding school was in the middle of nowhere and then it was an old gold mine and uh, we had a had a housemaster when I was 11 years old. You know, my parents sent me off to this uh, boarding school. Had a housemaster who had these old Land Rovers, and he would make us, well, not make us, but help us maintain and learn how to maintain these Land Rovers. And the sort of reward at the end of it was uh, we would take a, a, a trip, like a six-week trip through the Caprivi Strip into Botswana and course the land rover break down but we knew how to fix it and uh, come back on through it was you know preparing you for african life in the bush you know um but finished you finished uh, high school and i had a lot of jewish friends in by then it was zimbabwe you know independence had come which was a really interesting transition because not only does the country change name from rhodesia to zimbabwe in 1980, 1981, but everything changes names. The cities change names, the street names change names. All of a sudden, in a good way, I'm saying this in a good way, I'm a minority, and there's a lot of backlash as a, I would say, as a, a young 15, 16 year old. You know, you, you've got a lot of aggro, a lot of uh, testosterone in you. you. You're crossing the street in a newly independent country. You know, and, and somebody almost bangs into you uh, in their car. You're a pedestrian. And so you, you hit the car. And I thought, you know, hey, hey, dude. What? This is newly independent Zimbabwe. I'm a white guy hitting a black guy's car. Black guy gets out, picks me up by the scruff of my neck. You know, I'm a little little skinny <laughs> white guy. <laughs> Open-handed slap down. You white boy racist. <laughs> picks me up and slaps me down again. I get to school with these big slap marks on my face with my tail between my legs. What would they call you, though? What was their name for you? Oh, just, just, it was white boy? You, you, you white boy, you know what okay. I mean? Because there was a new empowerment, which, mm-hmm. and justifiably so, right? Um, so it was very it was very awkward. I remember once being in a... My mum would die to hear this. Uh, you know, in a bar, maybe 16 years old. And uh, sitting there in a, maybe a local, lower-class hotel in Harare, which was Salisbury, and uh, with a friend, having a beer. You know, he's sitting there. There's a, I'm a white guy, he's a white guy, there's a black guy next to us, and we're sitting there drinking beers. And he says to me, pushes his beer over to me, says, here, drink this beer. I'm like, no, I'm good, thanks, I've got a beer, thank you. So then, you know, why don't you want to drink my beer? Is it because I'm black and you're white? I was like, no, because I've got a beer. And that's when I learned pretty quickly when to, 
you know, when, when, when to get out, right? I mean, I've seen the situations here in Nicaragua, you know, you, you see it build, you know, okay, time to get out. Regardless, I mean, you could love that person, right? Right next to you in the bar, you could love that person. But you learn to just read the situation and you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to mess around, right? Because your intentions could be shit, the best of intentions and, uh, you, you got to get out. But, um, I had a lot of Jewish friends and they had always talked about going to Israel. So when I was, I think, 18, I went to London and uh, had long hair down to here. What year is this? Oh, Jesus. 74? No, 72. no, no, no. This is 80s. This is 80s. Uh, it's got to be... Right, you're, you're what, almost 47, you said? No, 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 no. This is 88. Got it. 88. I go to London. And... Uh, Oh, I can make this work, you know, get a job, you know, do the international thing. I walk into a job agency looking for a job, and I'm the dream of everybody. Get a job, work for a while, travel the world, walk in, and say, hey, looking for a job. And they say, well, what experience do you have? So I answered truthfully and said, none. Long hair, down to here. And uh, I said, well, sorry, we don't have any jobs. So I'm like, Okay. Walked out, and then it was a little bit of fate, and I saw the Jewish agency right there. Shit, all my friends back in Zimbabwe were Jewish, and they would go to Israel and work on the kibbutz, and I walked in there and I said, okay, kibbutz, sounds good. I signed up, signed up for the kibbutz, and um, signed up for two months, and ended up staying a year and two months. Um all the way from washing dishes, peeling potatoes in the kitchen. Then my main job became, I became a banana farmer on uh, all, and I would walk around. It was great. We would have these vests. Uh, I don't know what you call them in the States. Uh, I call them it a vest, but a, you know, it's a shirt without sleeves. Mm-hmm. Um, like a tank top? A tank top, tank top. Yeah, there's the word. Tank top. And of course, they're all stained with banana juices because when, when you're working the banana fields, the banana juice just gets in there and you just cannot get it out. So we'd have these gray tank tops all stained with banana juice and we're all like these robust young guys and we'd have short shorts on, boots that the kibbutz supply us with. They would supply us with everything. And we'd have a big machete on the side. And we were out there in the field. So I worked in bananas for a year. It was great. It was It was just... It was, Does the banana spider exist in uh, Israel as well? That, sorry, the banana spider, the one that I don't know. I don't, it, it never came up as a topic of conversation. So because here in Nicaragua and Costa Rica, there's yep. always a banana spider mm-hmm. that's dangerous. It's mm-hmm. a poisonous, venomous spider that's always living within the racimo, yep. as we call them here. Okay. And uh, you always want to be make sure that it was out after you cut down the banana tree before yep. you lift it on your shoulder and yep. walked away with it. But you didn't have that problem. No, there. no. I think the being Israel, there's a lot of chemicals applied and what have you. So it, it was great. It was always a team, two people. Bananas were very technified there. You'd have lines overhead to support the weight of the banana bunch. So every bunch would be tied with a string to the overhead line, right? Just because otherwise the tree would just fall over. So we would actually go with these cherry pickers. And if you know a cherry picker, it's, it's like a... It's like a four-wheel drive vehicle with a little crane. And we would tie the neck of the banana bunch up with 
Yeah, just nylon rope up to an overhead line that goes down every single line of banana. So it's very technified. And you're doing that. So when it t- comes to, and then you would cover each bag, each banana bunch with a bag so that insects don't get in there and uh, hail, well, rain or hail doesn't damage it. But comes time to harvest. You have a guy with a very long pole with a sharp hook on the end. Cuts the rope that connects the banana neck to the overhead cable. Okay, then the tree leans a little bit. I'm the picker, right? I'm pulling down onto my shoulder. And then he makes a, a cut in the, the tree, right? Like a, uh, an open mouth. So it allows you to, and you pull the bunch a little bit and set your height. And just over your head, he cuts the, the neck, mm. the boom, it comes on your shoulder. And sometimes it's a 50, 60 pound thing. And if it's too long, it can, it can break, right? The whole you lose thing. And so you lose bananas. But no, no, no. We, we were trained not to do that. It was, it was good, hard, rewarding work. Where was the kibbutz um, outside of what? Tel Aviv? Uh, no, way north, way north. Um, almost on the Lebanese border. Um, I lived in a bomb shelter. My, my room was a bomb shelter, and that's where, yeah, uh, but it, it was a bomb shelter. It was near north of Nahariya, which is a port town, getting way up north and close to Nahariya. Nahariya is right on the border with Lebanon. So we were about maybe two kilometers down from, or maybe three or four from the Lebanese border. And so we would, sometimes we couldn't go and work in the mornings because the cartouches would be coming over, this was the first Intifada, 88, 89. Um, we would love it because we're like, hey, we don't need to work today, you know? Um, so you're taking, you're taking bombs and you're just like, they work today. And, and so in the mornings we would go out in the banana fields and we'd find the, the, the flare parachutes because they, they send the flares up and uh, to send the parachutes down and we'd find these beautiful silk little parachutes and, uh, it was, it was wild. It was wild. Um, and there was so, this edginess to it, too. It was edgy. It was but it edgy. sounds like very familiar to you since you had come from yeah. Um, yeah. the yeah the atmosphere in Zimbabwe. And I think, but, you know, getting back to your original question, I think that's what draw, drew me a little bit to, to Nicaragua, was that edginess at the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, right. Because I find the States very, the United States very boring and uh, pedestrian, et cetera, et cetera. So I think... Nicaragua is it, it's edgy yeah it's edgy so you, after high school though you didn't go into academia you know how did you find mm. your way into academia fuck no I mean that was the last thing I ever wanted and, and maybe maybe the I'm still very disparaging of academia because I think uh, there's a lot of self-masturbation and navel gazing you know people uh, it's a zero-sum game it's very small stakes but people have a lot of egos and so I'm I'm sort of on the fringe and poking from the fringe um, hence, hence the reason you're, you're a professor that most people love I've met a lot of your students yeah, yeah. they love coming yeah. here with you you yeah. run you run not retreats but like classes, classes. here yeah. Um, yeah. where the kids get to see what you do and, and why it's so important yeah. what you do here yeah. because we live in a town that has a water yeah. problem yeah. Um, which we'll get into in a second mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. please go on and explain maybe how, how you oh, no. so um Shit. My wife and I were in London after being in Israel. I met her in Israel. And uh, two of her friends turned up in Israel. 
I mean, turned up in uh, London. We were living in North London and two Venezuelans. And they said, hey, we just applied to Louisiana State University. Why don't you guys apply? And at the moment, we were working to save up to buy a Land Rover to drive through Africa, right? To drive from whatever, just do the whole thing, however long it took. Two years, three years, four years. And we sort of looked at each other and said, well, why the fuck not? And um, ended up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, man. This white boy from Africa. I ended up washing dishes in the student union. And then slowly graduated up to the coffee bar. And this professor from geography would come by. These three or four professors. Geography is sort of somewhat famous for... They like to drink beer and have a good time. You know, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, his professors would come by every afternoon at the student union and they would have a couple of beers. And there was this old Irish guy. Oh, Matthew, I've been working on this, this formula, this, uh, sorry, equation to explain how waves break. Um, his name was Greg Stone. Greg Stone. What a name, you know? He died from the drink. Too much drink. Yep. Good Irish guy. And, um, so he would come on a napkin and have these formulas in front of me. To be sure, boy, you need to take a class in geography. Fuck yeah. I was taking classes in journalism at the time. I wanted to be an international war journalist. Sounds good. Journalism classes were boring. Ended up taking geography classes. That was it. Done. Fell in love. Fell in love. You know, fell in love with coastal studies, fell in love with waves. I was telling you earlier about the, you know, driving the, the, the big dually, with hauling the boats and what have No, no. I was telling Rojo, Dave, uh, sort of the work we used to do out in the southwestern coast of Louisiana. Uh, I used to drive a big Ford F-350 dually, hauling a nice Boston whaler behind it, a big turbo diesel, you know, pass anything on the highway. But um, So that was all a result of that of some professors who were very open and and just giving, right? They said, take geography, take geography, take geography. And I took geography and my eyes were opened. And then that was it. What did your wife get her degree in? Anthropology. And um, did she continue on to get a PhD? Or did she... she did in anthropology. So she did anthropology, I did geography. And again, it was an interrupted story. After finishing my undergrad degree, I we went and went back to London to work, to earn money, to travel through South America. The idea was, again, to drive a Land Rover. I'm fucking obsessed with Land Rovers, <laughs> you know. <laughs> a Land Rover through um, South America. And um, we ended up realizing that a Land Rover was too expensive, so we ended up hitchhiking. And we spent a year hitchhiking through South America. We did a pretty good job. Uh, the only countries we didn't get to were the, the Guyanas and up in the top. Um some amazing adventures along the way. And um, then towards the end of the journey, my wife's dad was sick. So we had to go back uh, to the States. It's like, shit, what do I do? I called up my own my old place of work um, at the university. And I said, hey, man, do you guys have a job? I'm looking for a job. I said, no, but if you're willing to be a graduate student, uh, we'll pay your way as a grad student and uh, if you work with us on this project, done. So I ended up getting my master's degree 
in sort of a coastal topic too. Trying to understand how a whole area of Louisiana had evolved through time because uh, uh, there's these inland beaches and how do we explain these beaches that are, you know, 15 kilometers inland, etc., etc. So it was a really, really cool project. I would get out on an ATV on the beaches, taking sediment samples. It was, it was pretty wild. It was, it was good stuff. Um, and then, shit, what happened? Probably got your wife pregnant. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, 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 yeah, 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 no, we did, we did, we did. Actually, that was it. We, we, we got pregnant. And then we, um, uh, she, she applied for a PhD in, uh, Arizona. There was a professor there that she wanted to work with. And I was like, go, 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 work with him. Super Chicano guy. Robert Alvarez is his name. Pretty famous for what he does. And she was like, I want to work with him. I'm like, let's go. We drove across country. I drove across, packed up stuff in a U-Haul, drove across from Louisiana to Arizona with all of her breast milk. And I was buying dry ice along the way to keep the, cause she was just like super producing a lot of milk. She's lactating. And, and it's so valuable. I mean, yeah. that this breast milk is, and she was like, you cannot let that breast milk defrost because, you know, we, we can give it to the baby later on, you know? So we get to Arizona and I said, don't worry, I'll find a job. I found a job as a, in a map library at the university. So my job was to look at maps all day. Um, and then after a while, I got a little bit bored. I wanted to be a, um, what do you call it? Public health doctor. Um, maybe, maybe get my master's in public health. And the university there wasn't equipped for that, for international public health. So I was like, okay, okay, I'll do a medical degree. So I thought, okay, medical degree. Sounds good. They said, now, Matthew, even though you have a master's degree, you've got to go back and take basic physics and chemistry. And I was, so I was okay, okay, good, I can do this. So I sat in a physics class. And it was the worst professor in the world, right? It was, just, it was terrible. So, is it raining? Yep, yeah. sounds like it. And... um so that fuck, this is not working. And in the meantime, all of my buddies from geography saying, Matthew, what the fuck are you doing? Get back into geography. So I applied for a PhD program in geography. In Arizona. In Arizona and did that. And, um. How long did it take you to get your PhD? I think I did it quickly because, you no, know, we had young family. Um, I think maybe three or four years. Um, I applied to do physical stuff, rivers and beaches. The guy who I applied to work with left, and I was like, "Shit, what do I what do I do?" There was this cool guy who'd worked in Latin America. He said, "Hey, I see you went to Louisiana State University. I also went there. Why don't you come by my office and chat?" His name is Mike Pasqualetti. I mean, what a great name, Pasqualetti. And he said, "Why don't you just go out there, go out and explore, and come back and write what you explored." And that was it. So that's basically how I got my PhD. And, and he said, off you go. Just go. I mean, forget all these classes and shit. He said, go. Just fucking go. Explore. And um, it's a really it, cool story. So yeah. you did seem, you indicated that you had a, not a passion, but something that drew, drew you to like rivers, yep. ocean, water. Yep. Um, 
which kind of brings us to like present day yep, where yeah, you yeah, find yep. yourself yep. here in Higante have, have done a water project here for the last 15 years or so? I would say the last, I would say probably the last eight years. Eight years. Eight years. The, the where you've been project. studying yep. the water table yep. in Higante. Yep. Can you tell us what the situation is? Because it's come up in past episodes, but for the audience to really understand, yep. like Higante has had a, a pretty incredibly bad drought yep. over the last Eight years? Since 2012. 2012. Until um, now. And so, for example, folks, like the water in the house I live in where we're doing this interview right now is brackish, meaning mm-hmm. it's, it's partly salt water. You can't it's cook with 950 it. 950 parts per million salt right now. Because I, I tasted the water the other day. You <laughs> okay. Know, so you, um, you taste it. It tastes mm-hmm. metallic. You can't cook with it. It's just too much mm-hmm. salt. It'll kill you if you drink mm-hmm. too much of it. Um, so he's been studying it. He's also been using the work from past uh, professors who have come here. Is that correct? Why um, don't you take over the story? Because I'm not familiar with No, 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 no. Um, I'll, I'll make it short, which is hard. But um, Don't make it short. Just tell us, tell us the no, I, deal, I, dude. I had a student, uh, Gary. You know him? Of course I know Gary. Yeah, Gary, Gary, <laughs> Gary. There's a good, yeah, there's a good story about Gary. Gary, um, he's now, he's called Thomas. That's, that's his name by choice right now versus Gary. And, um, my partner did that actually. He went for, from John to Jack. <laughs> John, John, so, <laughs> Midlife oh, crisis. I don't no, know. No, no, no. <laughs> Go on. Though. So, so, um, Gary came from the University of Chicago and wanted to do a PhD and, um, said, no, I'd really like to work with you. I said, well, I'm going on sabbatical. Came down here for the year and I said, so I'd suggest that you don't come right now. Go and do your master's degree somewhere else and then come back later. So. 2010, I take him down to Guatemala. We're on a National Science Foundation, uh, which is uh, the U.S. Uh, main funding for scientific research, basic research. We had a project going in Guatemala into climate change, uh, and we were using tree rings to try and reconstruct past climate. So I said, Gary, come on down, you know, you know. I had some funding from National Geographic to National Geographic Society in, you know, in the, the yellow magazine. Um, so, and I used a lot of that money to, to take students down, to get them involved, to, you know, uh, enhance the, the National Science Foundation stuff we were doing. So I said, Gary, come on down. And afterwards, I'm going to fly to Nicaragua. So we flew from Guatemala City to Nicaragua in 2010. And he was looking for a topic at that time. Uh, something to study. And we came down here. We camped out on the piece of land that I have out in the back there, uh, next to Dolfino's place, and um, under mosquito nets and under just a simple roof. Super cool. And the topic of water came up. Because, you know, you don't want, you, when you're doing research, my view is anyway, you don't want to force a topic on people. You want the topic to come out. And so we started pe- speaking with people. And they said, Water, 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 water is an issue. So we began to pay attention to that and to figure out how to sort of document what is available and where is it available. Basically, to look at shit. Okay. To look at the. Am I still still good? Okay. To look at. To look at. To try and answer the question is. Where is the water and how much there is? Yeah. It, it's beyond what we can answer. 
but um, we tried for the last eight years um, to document the geology. We have instruments in many wells up and down. We had an instrument in John's well. We sit in here in John's office. Uh, we had an instrument in his well for a while, but his well is a bit topsy-turvy. You know, people pulling pumps in and out and what have you. So our instruments, these are instruments that cost you know, three or $4,000. We put them down the well. They measure things like changes in salinity, changes in water level, temperature, etc., etc. So we try to figure out how much water there is, and um, and where it is. But what we found is that the geology in this area is so complex, it's beyond our ability. It, it, it would take a maybe multi-million dollar study to figure out exactly how water flows here. Because if you look, Chapin, if you look at Manzanillo, hmm. you look at any outcropping in this area, there's this sedimentary rock, the Cascajo. That's how the water flows along. It is not absorbed in some huge big aquifer that's down there in the ground. The, the Cascajo is impermeable. When it rains, the water comes through the top surface layer of soil, infiltrates down, hits this impermeable Cascajo, or which is a mudstone or a sandstone, hits that impermeable layer, moves along, finds a crack, moves down, finds another crack, moves down. So there's no way to predict where the water is. So just so the audience understands, like the geography and geology of the area, like yep. Gigante is a bay yep. that is about a kilometer wide with mountains pushed up right to the coast. So mm -hmm. we maybe have like whatever, like, uh, 400 meters until the first hill that we hit. Mm -hmm. And the water table, as you just described, has this uh, impermeable stone layered mm -hmm. like across that whole bay area in which it, it seeks, obviously, the most natural way to flow. Mm -hmm. And so to the water table is sectioned. So we have pockets that have fresh water. Take it from here, too. Like yeah, no, no, and, and, like, and I wouldn't even yeah. say pockets. It's... Okay. it's, it's it's just random flows of water um, because it rains. So all the wells that are dug then have just hit one level and we don't... But th this is the issue. The locals have very surficial, surficial wells. They, they, they hand dig them. They, don't they hand dig them. Yeah. Their wells are dug maybe to maximum 25, 30 meters deep because you, you're down there deeper... Things get crazy. If anybody mm. steps down into a 30-meter deep well, you can't dig deeper than that. Um, so they're tapping in one sense into sufficient water, not into the, the, the deeper, deeper stuff. But over the last years of drought from 2012 to 2017, every owner, if, if you go to any well in this area, you'll see a pile of rock next to it because one thing they've been doing is deepening their wells or trying to, trying to deepen the well because, you know, water table is falling or so they think and you've got to get deeper, deeper, deeper. Um, one thing, one of the results that we found from the studies that we've been doing is that um, the recharge time from the time the rain happens, like right now it's been raining for the last, let's say, week and a half, two weeks, steady on, 
it doesn't mean that there's going to be water in the wells straight away. It takes a time for it to come back into the wells. How much time? I've heard speculation that you've said maybe like, what, four years, five years? Oh, no, 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 no. It's quick. It's sort of three months. Oh, okay. It's three months that from the time that it comes in. So this is this is what one thing we've determined from isotopic analysis too. We've taken samples from the wells and water in this immediate area and also way back in the watersheds. So we wanted to understand if this water was new water or old water. And it's all new water. Everything here is new water. So the wells, every single well here relies on annual rainfall. Right. And the, the key is this. The, the bottom line is this. In good years, there's water. In bad years, there's no water. If you look at the long-term record which we have from Rivas, from the, the National Institute of whatever statistics they make us pay for these data and even though we're academics we're going to pay for these data <laughs> what do you got to pay 100 quarters no actually it's pretty damn expensive data are expensive you know but um we've got a 60-year record from Rivas. the drought is going to come again and again and again so there's a record there's a what record. we experienced the last yep. eight years has been documented yep. prior. And, and it will happen again and again and again so for tourism and the huge growth that it brings along the coast and it's not just tourists because it brings all the locals to the coast they build their houses etc etc all the proliferation of wells we've documented in the gigante area maybe in uh, 1990 there was three or four wells there's over 150 wells right now in this whole area. Hand dug and perforated wells. Meaning drilled, folks. Drilled, drilled, drilled. Yeah. Um, but everybody's happy right now. John's happy. His well is getting a little bit less salty. My shower doesn't taste like yep. shit anymore. Like, ah, this is good. This is good. This is good. But I think what everybody needs to keep in mind is that four years down the line, El Nino, La Nina coming again. There will there will be another drop, and it will be harder too. This is this is my bottom line. It will be harder. I mean, you why saw, do you say that though? Why will it be harder? Because there's, there's more, more people. people. There's okay. more people pulling from the same straws, right. and so you saw Semana Santa here. I don't know if you were here for some for Easter weekend. The the big trucks were coming through town, you know, selling water, selling water, selling water. Yeah. So it's it's water is complicated, and it, it's a shame because without water, we we we're, we're nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, it is. It has been interesting living here with that sort of reality in your day to day, where water is a commodity, and yep, yep. and people who do have money, like friends of mine, have bought properties yep. deeper deeper inland where they can drill and then mm-hmm. they pipe the water out to the coast mm-hmm. where we can then have fresher water. And you really see those who have it survive; those who don't struggle. And I so, mean. So, so for example, John, um, for years he's been going out to my well um, to fill up containers for his horses um, that he has out here as a part of a, I suppose, a tourism and a hobby object uh, project. But his horses will not drink the water from his well, so he sends volunteers. I remember I have an image in my head. A volunteer, it might have been Nick, or maybe years ago, a version of Nick, plodding out on a horse-drawn cart to my piece of land, which is maybe three or four kilometers down the road. And one of the wheels is, is, is deflated, 
So we pumped up the wheel with a hand pump when he got to the well. And he's got maybe 20 five-gallon bottles of the, the bottles that circulate in, in here in Nicaragua. It's a company, I don't know what the name of the company is, but uh, he fills those up with fresh water for the horses. And off he plods, this international volunteer back down the road in a horse-drawn cart, you know, with uh, 20 five-gallon five bottles of, uh, of, of I actually watched my friend yeah. um, walk with a hand-drawn carriage yeah. with five 50-gallon drums, yeah. three kilometers pushing it to fill those up with a hand pump well to then drag it back to his house. This was like two weeks ago. He lives on the, the new road. Yeah. And it just goes to show, like, we obviously take yeah. it for granted. <laughs> you know? No, no. Water is a big issue and will continue to be a big issue. And right. And people pay. And I had a student recently, an undergrad student, who did a, a study here last summer in Higanti, went house to house. It's a water security or insecurity survey. You know, how do you get water? What's it like? How much do you pay for potable water? Do you get sick from it? Uh, exactly. So just he did a good job, and uh, we still are analyzing the 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 results from that uh, survey. Let's touch upon so, that real quick because yep. you bring groups of students down from Denver University yep. is where you you teach at. Yep. Um, you bring groups down, they get credits. It's a class mm -hmm. essentially mm -hmm. for what, three weeks, six weeks? How long are you here? Short as possible because mm -hmm. I, I don't want to be a babysitter, you know. No, and, and, and they too, you know, if it's the summer, they've got jobs to go to, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a maybe max two week class. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of them have come back to do significant oh. things. Yep. Very significant things. Like yep. I, I learned before we started yep. this conversation that like Fun Limon, Limon yep. is a Pueblo north yep. of us. Fun Limon is an area in which they have created uh, an area for public sort of use of baseball fields. Mm -hmm. Of um, Can you take it from there and tell me what else Fun Limon provides for the community up in that area? Yeah, Fun Limon is a community center just outside of Rancho Santana near uh, Limon Uno and Limon Dos. There's two communities there that uh, are a little bit, maybe I'd say about 10 kilometers to the north of us here. And um, Fun Limon is a fully-fledged community center where they offer adult literacy classes, children English classes, adult English classes, classes in welding, classes in uh, what we call Fontanavia, um, plumbing, electricity. They have a sports program. It's, a, it's, 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 it's wild. And who funds it at this point? It's a private foundation. It's the uh, Ford Family Foundation. They are allied with Agora Publishing. Um, and I would say they've, in, just in terms of infrastructure, they've spent at least a million bucks in the center there. Um, and then an operating budget every year of a lot. They're trying to figure out ways to make it a little bit more self-sustainable so they don't have to be putting money in every year. They have a, a, a chicken farm out there which produces lots of good organic eggs um, which they supply to the schools the, uh, in the area because the government does give food to schools, but this is a, a protein supplement to the schools. Um, they give microloans to people in the area. They give scholarships so that 
Nicaraguans from the area can go to local universities with the, the give back of, let's say I go and study accounting in Managua. I come back to Limon Uno, Limon Dos. I have to help local store keepers, you know, set up a basic accounting system so I can see how much I'm making, how much is coming in, how much is going out. Is my kid eating more than I'm earning, you know, from the, all, all the, all the crap that they're eating at the store, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's good programs there. Um, and. Anytime I challenge anybody to go to a baseball game or a softball game, the women's softball game at Fonlimon, it is active. It is, it's well used. Um, they have a FIFA regulated soccer football field in the back. It, it's great. They also um, now have, they host the, um, the Nicaraguan rugby team. Yep. <laughs> which yep. is pretty cool. They just yep. played Canada the other day. They yep. lost, but you know, get on them for, uh, taking on that challenge. Um, and then you also had another student start, what is it, pre? Yep. Espen, Espen Hagen, a Norwegian guy. Um, he came down with me to Nicaragua in 2007, same time as Mike Ford. And uh, he really became enamored with the rural areas. I'm talking way out back in the bush here. And realized that Education in rural areas was a big necessity. As you well know, when it rains here, the streams flood, kids can't get to school, the school is five kilometers away or ten kilometers away, and walking there just becomes impossible. So he worked very closely with the Ministry of Education to say, look, if I build a school here, will you provide a teacher? We have a... Uh, Petition, a petition from the local community that yes, they want a school and they will help build it. They will provide the labor. I will provide the, the material and one skilled laborer, right? And the school will get built and the Ministry of Education will provide a teacher. Done. So he did about, I would say about, maybe about eight schools in places like San Martin, further up uh, north of uh, Guasacate. Other places, really remote places where they would have to break, um, sorry, bake the bricks on site. Break the, you know, yeah, reverse that one. You know, do a spoonerism on that one. Mm-hmm. Bake the bricks on site and haul in all the, the rebar by ox cart, et cetera, et cetera. There are some schools out there that are just, just wild. And not only is it a school, but it is a community center, right? And we would put solar panels. Um, I had some solar panels out here in Higantin. And when everybody got light here, we took them out to those, those, those schools out there. The batteries, the inverters, and what have you. Um, so that kids could see videos and films. They could use films in class. I mean, these, I don't know if you, you you've been out there chaping in these rural areas, but it's, it's a really different world from the coast. It's, it's a different world. Um, so Espen, he did everything he needed to do. Pre still exists. And what they exist to do now is to give maintenance and work with the communities to give maintenance to the schools they, they built. And, you know, people say to him, well, why did you extend to San Juan and Salinas and further north? And he's like, oh, I'm done. You know, I mean, and he did, he did a good job. Um, 
And like people can still donate to these causes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To to both pre and to Funlimon. Funlimon has always been a private family foundation, but during the uh, hurricane last year, uh, Hurricane Nate, for the first time they actually asked for outside money. I donated. Um, just the whole area was hit really hard. People needed beans, rice, oil, tampons, whatever, chloro disinfect the water, etc., etc. It was the first time that they donated, uh, they asked for donations. and But kept a very close accounting of that. And in their newsletters, have said to everybody who donated, okay, this is exactly to the cent of how we spent the money. Um, and there's always that sort of dilemma, because it is very easy to ask for donations and run a NGO like that, right? Uh, but then you're accountable. Whereas if you're a private family foundation, do what you want. You do what you want, you know. Um, and I mean, not to say that they've done bad, but not accountable to other people. Totally understandable. So, so as of now, you're on sabbatical. Yep, yep, yep. You plan on retiring and coming here anytime soon and living with us for long term? No, I'm... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I'm still always, passionate about what you do. Oh no, 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 no! I'm always connected to Nicaragua, and I think that's something about the type of academics that I do. It's, it's something we call in, in Spanish uh, "comprometido," like I'm compromised with the communities that I work with. I've worked for at least twenty years in Guatemala with communities there. And these are communities who've been hit really seriously there by the civil war. And here, I, I can't leave. So I will always have a connection here to Gigante and the people. Um, so yeah, while often I'm here on the coast enjoying the waves, I think more often than not you'll find me back on the farms with with the people having a nice sopa de gallina on Mother's Day like yesterday. Um, so... Retire? No, 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 no. I have a student here right now. She's a doctoral student doing her PhD. And she's investigating the whole, the bigger history of land in the area. Uh, because if you think about the, the land reform that took place during the Sandinista Revolution, it's all great, it's glorious, but then you look at the results right now. There's places like Santana, there's places like Guacalito and Iguana, and the question becomes, how, how did these big pieces of land become preserved? If it was all distributed to peasants, how is it that people were able to accumulate these big pieces of land? So that's what we're trying to unravel. It's a dangerous was, question, dude. If, if, if there was a longer a dangerous sort of question. plan behind that. So we're trying to get there. So we'll interview people like Jamie Wheelock and etc. Okay. etc. Et so I'm, I'm anxious to hear that. Yeah, so. um, you work with you work with students that are gonna hopefully impact the world. Yep. In a lot of ways. Yep. Um, I've met your students, they all love you yeah. as a professor. But my question to you is why do they love you? How do you inspire them and how would you inspire the audience to go out and do what they want to do yeah, if they're if they're like about to like make a big change in their life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of Huh, that's 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 a really good question. I think 
you have to let go of a lot of your prejudices um, and a lot of your privileges too and be humble. And that's what I try and instill in students is that just be humble and listen. It's hard for them sometimes because a lot of them, this is a private university that I work at. They come from very privileged backgrounds. Not all of them. There's a lot of good scholarships, etc., etc. But um, what I do is open your eyes for a little bit. Open your eyes. And um, sometimes it works. Sometimes you have an impact. And other times, you know, people come... They see this is a nice little party beach. They have a good party. And they go back and they're nonetheless informed, right? But others, it hits them hard. And they say, got to do something. Sometimes I get an email from a student five years down the line. And they say, wow, what you did for me in Nicaragua or in Guatemala or what have you changed the way that I look at the world. And I did this, this, and this because of that. And I'm unaware of that, right? And that's not necessarily my, you know, I mean, I don't go out there to say, I'm going to change this person and this, this. And, and so for me, it's a super unexpected reward. Because often as academics, we question, why are we doing this, right? We write papers that nobody reads. Um, what impact do we have? So when I receive a, an email from a student that says, Wow, Matthew, this class that I took with you really changed my view of the world. That's my best, my best reward um, when I doubt myself. Because it, it's easy to doubt yourself. As, a, do as an academic, day, you do. doubt yourself all the time. You know, I think so. a lot of us who are listening, myself included, sitting here with you, are yep. constantly, when we challenge ourselves, when we walk out to the unknown yep. and not know how we're going to be able to respond, we question every yep. single step of the way. Yep. And what you do with your students is you expose them to situations that are unfamiliar to where they really get to see what they're made of real yeah. quick. Yep. You know, I know That's that true. you take them out into places where you talk to the revolutionaries who are still mm -hmm. squatting on mm -hmm. land, yep. trying to get the land that they feel they are rightfully owed for the fight that they yep. put up, yep. you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, 70s, whatever. And that has a huge impact on anybody who sees yep. these people who are smiling, who are living in a, in a tin hut. Mm -hmm with no running water, mm -hmm. an outhouse, and they're sitting here like, my life's great. I would appreciate this land, though. Yep. You know, maybe I could flip it make a little bit of money, but that's a huge impact that can really change a lot of lives. And I think for anybody listening, when you walk out there and you, and you experience those kind of things and expose yourself to that and just embrace what, it, what comes to you, that uh, you are enabling yourself to then maybe put yourself in that individual's shoes and, and feel what they feel for a minute, you know? Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. And I think I, I, I do that with students, and I maybe do it in a way that I take for granted, right? And that, that's the hard part because I've lived it all the way through Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes I have to step back and point it out to people and say, look, 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 right? So it, it, it's hard sometimes to push students and say, you know, slap on the face, look, and look hard. Um, so, and I've had some great TAs through the year, teaching assistantships who 
you know, a guy from Costa Rica, another guy from Guatemala who have learned to say, hey, you North Americans, here we are, Latinos from Costa Rica and Guatemala. Don't make that assumption, right? Flip everything on its head. What's my perspective of you here? And that has helped me no end. I have two students, one, Diego, in Guatemala, who now has a postdoc. He's working at uh, Columbia University in the U.S. And he just would always do that. And, and we, would, we would somewhat intentionally do that. I would say, Nikolai, push it, push it, push it, push it, push it. I can't do that. Not my position to do that. But, you know, and sometimes it would get edgy. And um, there'd be some conflict between the TA and the students, and then there would be some discussion, and there'd be a learning moment. We'd move on. So it's, it's not always easy, you know. It's not, it never not is. Easy. I mean, like yeah. last episode, I talked with Yazi about change and the changes we're going through here. Yep. With our present situation, the way we make our income, mm-hmm. our livelihoods are being challenged and affected right now. And we talked about this change and how we deal with it. It's never fun. It's never easy. If you are an individual who embraces change and does like it, you're rare. Yep. Um, but at the same time, you never get to achieve your full potential without change. Yeah. You have to go out into the unknown. You have to be challenged in experiences that you don't know how to respond to. And that's where you learn the most about yourself. I love having you, dude. This has been such a pleasure having you, dude. It's just been so nice. We went way long. <laughs> no, way it's long. perfect, dude. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Misfits and Rejects. It's always a pleasure having you. I hope this really gets you thinking, gets you considering maybe doing something different. Matt Taylor is inspiring a lot of his students to get out there and do something in communities like the one I live in here in Gigante that hopefully impact a lot of lives. You don't have to impact a lot of lives. You can just impact your own by doing what you want, making decisions that are going to help you get more of a fulfilling life from the, the places you go, the people you meet, and the situations you find yourself in. And if you want to donate to Misfits and Rejects, you can do it via Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects. Donations range anywhere from a dollar on up. If you can't, donate. No worries. Sharing Misfits and Rejects is a huge help as well. And I just want to thank you again for your time. You're loved and appreciated. And I think you're also very beautiful. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.